Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey guys, we're getting set to do uh, this bonus interview, talking all things John Prine. We gotta wait for this guy to stop blowing leaves in Ben's backyard. Listen to this guy. Gotta love the attic. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Thursday, April 16th, but of course... Lord knows when you're listening to this, it's a podcast. You can be listening to it anytime, as we do uh, on all our bonus shows. I ask my distinguished guest or or guest to introduce him or herself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I am Mark Garino, journalist in Chicago. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, Mark. Mark and I have been talking nonstop, it seems, uh, over the last week. Uh, Mark's not just any journalist in Chicago. He is a correspondent. Uh, for the Washington Post, and he freelances for my beloved reader, uh, and he does, covers politics for the Post, and he writes about all kinds of things from the reader. The article that I'm fixated on has to do sort of a retrospective look at the life of John Prine, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. John Prine, the great uh, singer-songwriter, died, what was it, about a week ago, Mark? Was it? I've lost track of time. Yeah, last, last Tuesday night. Yeah, so a little over a week ago. At age 73. All right. Uh, John Prine, I have so many memories of John Prine. Why don't you, Mark, uh, just give a little brief sketch of John Prine's life and why he is so important? Wow, that's a big task, but I'm going to try. Um, so so John Prine um, was sort of the leading figure of the Chicago folk scene that was flourishing here in the late 60s and then 70s. So when folk music kind of died out everywhere else, particularly Greenwich Village, it continued. It had a second life here in Chicago. We had a lot of singer-songwriters living here, and it, it kind of started over again. And he was the leading songwriter that came out of here. Um, and uh, and then also, the, the, he's really linked to the old-time school of folk music where he took classes in the late 60s. And um, his first record... Uh, was really heralded for just an amazing collection of songs. He was compared to Bob Dylan and considered a new Bob Dylan at the time. Uh, he grew up in Maywood, just west of Chicago, um, and really lived there in Melrose Park for uh, most of his life until he left here in about 1980 to resettle in Nashville. So um, a really important figure, not just for this area, but just in 
what we think of as singer-songwriter music today. Um, and it's one of the, you know, America's greatest songwriters right here in the backyard of Chicago. Uh, some very specific memories of John Prine. There's a generational difference between Mark and myself. As always, I'm always the old guy in these conversations. But <laughs> I, I was... Um, I was about 14 years old, I want to say, maybe 13, when I first became aware who John Prine was. He started, he got a write-up in the Chicago Sun-Times, and I was a kid growing up in Evanston, Mark, and my family would subscribe to the Sun-Times, and Roger Ebert, the great uh, film writer, film reviewer for the Sun-Times, wrote a story, stepped out from film reviews, movie reviews, and wrote a story about John Prine, who was then an unheralded, unknown folk singer playing at a club on Armitage, I want to say, on the north side of Chicago. And uh, that's kind of when I became aware of him, and then they started playing on the Midnight, uh, what was the name of that show? Midnight Special on WFMT. Midnight Special, yeah. Where they yeah. played folk music, and uh, my father bought a John Prine album. Remember, I think it's the first one where he's sitting on the bale of hay. Remember that one? And the fun- Yeah, and the funny thing, that's his first, yeah, that's the record I mentioned, and the funny thing about that bale of hay is that you know, they were trying to trying to market him as sort of this, like, country guy, um, you know, uh, sort of like Dylan was going through his country thing as well. And uh, But he later said, you know, he never touched a bale of hay in his life. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he was a city guy. He had nothing to do with, you know, but you'd think he was in the old barn, you know, pitching uh, <laughs> to, uh, to the horses. You know, and then, you know, the only horses he was close to were the ones on Maywood Track and North Avenue. Well, well, this is the interesting thing about John Prine. Let's talk about this. Because when I first became aware of John Prine, uh, I he was, you're right, he grew up in Maywood. He went to Proviso East High School. Uh, and I was a sports fanatic, so I knew all about Proviso East. I thought of Proviso East was mostly a black school. They had great basketball teams uh, back around the time when John Prine was there. And they were rivals to Evanston. So I didn't think of uh, Proviso East as a place that would uh, produce someone who would be singing, I don't know, country songs or folk songs. And here was John Prine from Proviso East, from Maywood. And he had a bit of like a, uh, a Southern accent. I remember when I first hear him in interviews, I was like, how did this guy emerge from Maywood and Proviso East? <laughs> Well, I think part of that is, so there's a couple of reasons. One is that, um, so Chicago and its surrounding areas had a, a great migration of its own um, of white Southerners moving up from Appalachia, mostly, kind of the upland the south, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee, moving here for jobs, for factory jobs, starting in around like the 30s, going all the way up to the 60s and 70s. And so there was a steady stream of white Southerners moving near where the factories were. And one of the places, so, you know, Uptown was, was one of the place, places, um, north side of Chicago. We had a lot of small manufacturing jobs. But then you had a lot of um, uh, all those kind of collar um, suburbs like Maywood, Melrose Park, Bellwood, um, uh, hillside, those areas also, um, with, a, with a lot of them settled because a lot of the major factories were along a lot of those big corridors. Like if you drive down North Avenue, long past Wicker Park, uh, and long past, uh, you know, Oak Park and River Forest, they're pretty industrial. And so, uh, there are a lot of factories out there. And that's where his parents settled. Well, I'm sorry, his grandfather settled in the 
20s um, to kind of come up here and uh, search for factory work. And so that's the kind of Southern connection as well. Um, and we think of Maywood now, I mean, Maywood's kind of a depressed area because a lot of those factories have gone away. But back then, it was really a kind of a middle-class neighborhood where you had all sorts of people working at the same factories um, and living together in the same community. And, and a little quirky uh, historical factoid that only an obsessive, geeky Chicago type like myself would uh, put together. I think I mentioned this to you in the, uh, on the phone the other day when we were talking about this. Uh, John Prine is two years older than Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton, the leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, gunned down in his sleep on uh, his West Side apartment uh, back in 1969. They both went to Proviso East High School. I would never think of uh, John Prine and Fred Hampton in the same sentence, but they went to the same high school. It's pretty amazing. I wish I, I wonder if he's talked about that, you know, and uh, John Prine, you know, he's, he's had to know that. And, um, you know, there's a lot of photos that are um, surfacing of him in high school as a star gymnast. So he was really athletic back then as well. Um, I don't know if Fred Hampton, what he was doing in high school at all. So maybe they crossed paths. I imagine they had to. It was a pretty, um, I have a quote in my reader story uh, from him where he's talking about how it was a melting pot. You had uh, Mexican people from Mexico, black Southerners up, you had white Southerners up. And everyone pretty much got along, according to him. He didn't blink twice. It wasn't only until he went into the Army and he was at a boot camp in Louisiana that he saw other guys his age freaked out from seeing, you know, um, people of different colors and people of different ethnicities around them. And he said that really made him think that where he grew up was a really unique place because Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't a big deal. You know, he was... 20 years old, it was not a big deal to be around people who look differently than you. Now, Mark, I'm going to go through uh, the, some of the songs that you mentioned in uh, your essay in The Reader, and I encourage everybody, when you're done listening to this, uh, to go check out that reader story that Mark wrote about John Pine. It's a great tribute to Pine. Uh, but before we take, I lead you through these, uh, how did you find your well, uh, way to John Pine's music? Um, how did you discover John Pine? Sorry, but a rambunctious dog right next door to me. So he, um, so he was always um, kind of there. You know, my 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 dad was really into folk music, and I always thought of him as someone whose albums were kind of passed from generation to generation. And um, he, my dad wasn't aware of John Prine because he was just about ten years older than him. But uh, my dad was a kind of a folk revival guy, so that music was in our house. I became someone into Bob Dylan, and I think that led me to John Prine. I got into John Prine probably the late 80s. Um, I hadn't heard of him before. Um, I think that record, Lost Dogs and Mixed Blessings, I think that had sort of a song on the radio. That's the album that has Lake Marie on it. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That's all it took was that record. And I just, you know, kind of went, went back and devoured everything. And secondly, the other thing I found really fascinating about him was that I grew up in Oak Park and my family's, uh, my father's side of my family was all in Oak Park. So I spent a lot of time going over the little um, branch of the um, river there, going into Melrose, back and forth in Melrose Park. And I found it really interesting that he was from that area because I knew it really well. And so personally, that was interesting to me. And also when we think of, um, you know, great artists who were coming out of Chicago, 
they weren't coming from that area. And so I found it really um, uh, great that uh, that side of the city was kind of producing somebody like him. And, and it, he seemed to kind of reflect that side of the city as well. Very unpretentious. Yeah, very unpretentious. That is definitely John Pride. Even when he became successful and made uh, some good money uh, from his uh, songwriting, he was uh, would come back to provisoies, do benefits provisoies. I never felt I never thought he went Hollywood or Nashville, whatever you want to call. It. What's the you know, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, he kind of he. It's the last 10, 15 years. He kind of became this um, sort of elder figure in Nashville that all these young up and coming songwriters really kind of flocked to. He kind of became sort of like you know Johnny Cash had died, you know he had been revered, and then he died, and a lot of that generation before Prime had kind of come and gone. And and John Prime, along with someone like Bobby Bear and Tom T. Hall, these songwriters were kind of still around. And they were these guys from the seventies. Um and so um I think that he the great thing is that he was able to sort of enjoy um a lot of love um from younger fans before he went. And a lot of you know, there's a lot of people from his era who didn't get that they got the renown after after they died and so he um he he became the sort of i mean if you go to nashville now you'll see a mural of him um i just saw on facebook today that, that somebody had put up a billboard with his you know his photo on on it and um, so he's really became this revered guy in nashville but i yeah I, I agree i mean i think that he i think his attitude and everything um you know the way he talked and just his stories you know, really are, you know, steep in, in Chicago. All right. Now, th- if this were uh, the Midnight Special, we pay- we would play bits and pieces of his songs, but I'm not quite sure what the copyright rules are and don't want to get sued by the <laughs> estate of John Prine. So we'll just uh, we'll talk about the songs. And if you feel compelled, Mark, you can sing. Uh, you could just, uh, you know, drop in the song. Uh, I just randomly took uh, songs that you mentioned in your reader story Uh, And it's just by chance, they all kind of reflect different aspects of John Prine's. Uh, So let's start with the first one. Your flag decal won't get you into heaven. You know, that song um, was, you know, you could classify that as an anti-war song, but it was very different from Phil Hoax and other songs we think of of anti-war Vietnam songs. And really the song it, is, it, it, it remains relevant today because ultimately it's about hypocrisy of using the um, the, the American flag to sort of to, to wave it for nationalism and all these sort of right-wing um, uh, causes. And the song just kind of looks at people and just uh, people who are waving their flags but still don't really believe in freedom. And, you know, he had so- said that that song kind of came to him from, he worked as a mail carrier in some of those suburbs, including Westchester, and he would walk down the streets and he would see these American flag decals everywhere that came from a Reader's Digest that he was delivering. So Reader's Digest is sending out these flag details, and and they were really kind of um, a coded message against the counterculture. Um, And so that's what that song's about, really about just manipulating the American flag for your own means. And Man, you can't, it's just, it's, uh, you know, anyone who saw that gridlock rally in Michigan, you know, he, he's writing about that sort of stuff, you know, waving the American flag, but um, 
for things that are not necessarily what the flag is really about. Yeah, not by the way that uh, I'm speaking a lot about uh, Operation Gridlock in Michigan. They had the bright idea, of, <laughs> yeah. uh, but they also where, where they weren't just waving the American flag, just pointing this out. They were also some people waving the Confederate flag. Uh, interesting. And, flag and I saw me. I saw a Nazi flag. Somebody had posted that there was also a Nazi flag there. So not oh, really the symbol of freedom. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, one journal put that out on Twitter. Mm. They, they, some people pose with an option like so. There you go. Now, Mark, are you one of those uh, John Prine fanatics that can um, recite his his uh, lyrics by heart? I am not. No, I mean I know lines, but I'm. But also, I'm not one of those people who can recite any song lyrics yeah. by heart. Yeah. I can when they're actually being played, but I couldn't just you know you couldn't just like snap your fingers and I can just. It'll flow from my tongue now. Okay, I'm. I am it's the same reason why I don't know basketball statistics or baseball statistics. Oh, uh, I uh, yeah, no, I, I. Well, I'm actually pretty good with the basketball statistics. I think that's probably a more primitive uh, type of memory mastery. You know what I'm saying? Like to be able to quote a line. I don't know. That's a little more sophisticated than a bet. Well, in 1971, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was then Lou Alcindor, averaged 28 <laughs> points a game. That's a little different than uh, if you could recite lines from your flag decal won't get you into heaven. All right. Um, now, the next song you mentioned just from the, um, uh, the article is Fast Forward about uh okay your flag decal won't get you into heaven if i'm correct and correct me if i'm wrong was his first record back in 1970 am i correct about that yeah yeah it is it is yes for the first record from his first record and uh with the one where he's sitting on the bale of hay uh and then yeah you (laughs) fast forward and you actually uh quoted uh this is a tremendous song uh some humans ain't human 2005, I want to say, that came out. Talk about that song. Yeah, yes. That's, I believe that's from his Fair and Square record of original songs. His songwriting had slowed down in his last two decades, and he just said he kind of hit a lot of writer's blocks, but he, um, he came up with that record. And that, rec- that song, um, I just felt like, boy, you know, it really, um, it really just had so much anger underneath it. But it again, with John Prine, it didn't sound like an English song. Like everything's very subtle. That's what the, you know, any sort of great fiction writer and, and songwriter really has is that they, they can talk about things and, but they make it very subtle. So you kind of enter the song a little bit and, you know, they're not pointing your finger at you and telling you what to think. And that song, it's, it's kind of borders on it's very funny. Um, but also it's, it's just, it's very angry about George W. Bush and, um, uh, you know, at, at a time when people were wondering, are these people, you know, they're, they're basing a war on a lie. They're sending other people's kids and still die into this false patriotism. You know, how do human beings do that? And that really, that song really captured, captured that. Uh, yeah, uh, here's uh, some of the lines that you quote in the story. Some humans ain't human, though they walk like we do. They live and they breathe just to turn the old screw. They screw you when you're sleeping. They try to screw you blind. Some humans ain't human. Some people ain't kind. Uh, wow. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That. Um, it's it's there, hard to walk there, with. There's a lyric. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lyric at the end, um, and I'm not 
recording just from memory. I looked it up. I have it in front of me. But, um, uh, looking at um, there's uh, have you have you ever noticed when you're feeling really good? There's always a pigeon that comes shit on your hood. When you're feeling your freedom and the world's off your back. Some cowboy from Texas starts his own war in Iraq. What's that line? The dog was barking. <laughs> Some yeah, no, I'm that's sorry. okay. Don't worry about it. It's a podcast. What what, what was the line from uh, about Texas? Um, the last two lines are um, when you're you know um, I got to go up because there's uh, have you ever noticed when you're feeling really good? There's always a pigeon that'll come shit on your hood, or you're feeling your freedom and the world's off your back. Some cowboy from Texas starts his own war in Iraq. Wow, some cowboy from Texas. Wasn't even a legitimate cowboy, uh, George uh, W. Bush. That's a whole other story. (laughs) Wasn't even a real cowboy. I mean, you know, okay. Uh, Now, all right, Uh, John Prine on Donald Trump. You interviewed John Prine. Uh, How many times did you interview John Prine? Um, A couple. Let's see. One, two, three. About four times, yeah. And you asked him about Donald Trump. Yeah, so he, so last time I, you know, I saw him last summer, but before then I interviewed him and it was the summer before the 2016 election. And he had talked about, um, uh, you know, he was in a good mood, I think, like a lot of people were about the election, um, that, you know, this was going to be a slam dunk, um, uh, of, of, um, for Hillary Clinton and the Democrats. And so he wasn't as much of a threat. But, yeah, he talked about how he just couldn't believe that someone like Donald Trump even existed. You know, that he just seemed to be someone who was um, really kind of, I guess you could say, anti-American. You know, just someone who was very, um, uh, just, you know, very cynical. You know, Donald Trump's point of view is such a cynical point of view. He's really touching upon the worst of what people um, of the American character, you know, the sort of um, what we think of kind of that um, the wild west of this kind of the American frontier character. He's really kind of touching upon that. Of um, And so he, he kind of talked about that. And um, he said that he, he could write a protest song about Donald Trump in a second if, he, if, if Donald Trump became elected. And, um, and he, he actually kind of did in this last He does have a song called Caravan of Fools that, again, is another one of those songs um, that, um, that, that is sort of a veiled um, uh, protest song. And, um, and it's just um, talking, I mean, for me, it's, I see it as sort of a song that really looks at his followers. You know, he, the, the, one of the lines is, you're running with a caravan of fools. Um, the dark and distant drumming, the pounding of the hooves, the sounds of everything that moves. Late at night, you'll see them back on shiny jewels. They're coming of the, the coming of the caravan of fools. Mm. So that deck out in shiny jewels, the coming of the caravan of fools. You know, um, I, I saw that kind of song. It's sort of like really, in a way, um, kind of pointing in the direction of, of, you know, the the, the sort of the masses sort of being hoodwinked by by Trump as the common man, mm-hmm. the man who's going to save Appalachia. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty poignant. And he, a lot of his songs really kind of are, um, you know, he's had a song called Every Empire Must Fall, um, another really great song called The Great Compromise. 
future songs over the years that you could classify as protest songs, but more kind of like um, talking about society and where the country's going. Um, he, he was really good about that. And I think that's why these songs really last because they're not, you know, I love Phil Lokes, but if you hear listen to the songs, they do feel like time capsules of that era. John Pine songs, I think, you know, these songs will be will be sung years from now for different, you know, during different time periods and different um, things that are going on. So, yeah, I think uh, um, that was his that was his kind of sign off of Donald the Donald Trump phenomenon, which is on his latest record called The Tree of Forgiveness. Uh, now, speaking of John Prine songs, it'll probably last forever. Uh, this song that I'm going to ask you to talk about, uh, producer Dennis uh, says it's maybe the saddest song, one of the saddest songs he's ever heard. It truly is a sad song, uh, and it's a great song, and it's got perhaps one of the most memorable lines of the 20, uh, 20th century. I would put that out there. I would call it the mo- one huh. of the most memorable lines of the 20th century from a pop song. And that would, of course, this song is Sam Stone. Talk about Sam Stone. Amazing, right? So, again, we're talking about protest songs. How better to talk about the just the meaninglessness of war than to focus on a person who, you know, uh, somebody you might know who lives right next door to you. And that's what he did with Sam Stone. That's on his first record. And it's about a, a vet, veteran who comes home and, like a lot of veterans, became junkies because they couldn't. Uh, handle that transition of what they saw in the conflict overseas. And, you know, the line you're talking about is um, uh, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Um, The song is really sung from, um, I think that, you know, from the kid who's looking up at dad, who's sticking a needle around and they have nothing. Um, And it's such a sad song. You know, sweet songs never last too long on broken radios. You know, dad's this broken radio has come, come, you know, he's coming home and it's destroying the family. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's amazing. You know, that song has lasted so long. He told me he sings that every single night. He can't leave the stage without people demanding that song being heard. So what does that tell you? I mean, I think that tells you there's something in that song that people know about. There's something intangible in that song. You know, they may not know they may not know a Sam Stone in their life, but they kind of know that sadness. I think that comes through in those simple lines, um, and the sadness. I think of marching young people off to war and expecting them to come return back into society, apparently normal. That just doesn't happen. And I think that song, really sung from an innocent looking up at dad, is really uh, boy. That's really that's that's a pretty powerful thing, and that song probably has been covered by more people than any of the songs. Angel from Montgomery maybe is up there, but I think Sandstone's been covered by so many different artists of all stripes and all colors. Um, it's definitely his uh, tour de force. Before we get to Angel from Montgomery, which has been covered by a lot of people, uh, I just have to ask you this: You interviewed him four times, and you were a fan. You were you loved his music. Did you have that moment? Uh, when you first, <laughs> when you first started in John Prime, you're like, you know what I mean? John Prime, oh my God, can I touch you? Uh, or, or you're like, hi, Mark, I work for the Washington Post and I'm as cool as you. I mean, 
did you cover up, you know, or how'd you deal with it? I, you know, I kind of didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't do that Chris Farley thing, like, you know, whoa, you know, tell me everything. You know, I didn't, I wasn't <laughs> like that. I think because, I think because also he kind of put you at ease. I think that there was some quote from somebody last week about, um, gosh, who was it? It was Iris Dement, who sang a great duet with him, was talking about how she had watched him, you know, they'd be on tour together, and she had watched him at truck stops and, you know, places just kind of talking to people hanging around, you know, and he just didn't have any air, you know, on him. And I think that's, I think that's probably why I wasn't like completely insane because he just seemed like a guy who, you know, he, he was interested in you and he was, and he was just um, very laid back and just a nice person. And I think that kind of, and I, and boy, you know, boy, that'll, that'll settle you down. You know, that'll really, really settle you down. And um, and he was a talker, too. He was a Chicago guy. He talked. So he, he didn't, you know, there weren't any awkward silences. He just, he had he had stuff to say. He was a storyteller. So I think that kind of prevented, you know, any sort of um, major freak out of my end. Yeah, well, uh, by the way, the brown line roaring by. <laughs> All right. <laughs> brown, brown line, dogs barking, and the guy brown line. <laughs> blowing the leaves. <laughs> John Prine would love this interview. Um, exactly. This uh, is a Chicago interview right Chicago here. Chicago interview right here with the dog in the background and the guy with the leaves. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just have to say this. You alluded to one of my favorite bits in the world. Dennis knows this. Chris Farley, folks, sometime when you're not listening to this podcast, <laughs> joke, check out the Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney bit up from Saturday Night Live. It's so freaking funny. Sometimes, Mark, I just watch that. You know what I mean? I, I need a laugh. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because there was probably only two people. People would say, like, there's two people I felt that way before I got on the phone. And one was um, Emmylou Harris. And one was Paul Westerberg from The Replacements. And both those times, I was pretty, um, I mean, I was, I, I sounded like a bumbling idiot, you know. And for whatever reason, those two people um, made me feel, um, I, I just I just felt like I had so much, I could, I could talk to them for, you know, seven days straight, no break. And, um, and here I'm going to talk to them for maybe 20, 20 minutes. And so I think those people, but, you know, I talked to, it's, it, but it's strange, you know, it was really, John Pine was such a, um, uh, you know, he, and he was just a, he was just a really kind of laid back neighborhood guy, even though he wasn't, you know, he, he, he had a pretty incredible life. He played around the world and people loved his music. He did seem like he, um, you know, he took it all in very leisurely. All right, now we're going to close with uh, Angel from Montgomery. I know you have to get somewhere, so talk about the significance of Angel from Montgomery. I said uh, Sam Stone has the most memorable line uh, in it that uh, as John Prine ever wrote, in my humble opinion. But Angel Montgomery might be his best-known song. Talk about Angel Montgomery. Yeah, so Angel from Montgomery um, was a song that most people heard about through Bonnie Raitt. She has a really iconic um version of that song and it's written and think about it, this song was on his first record and the first line of the song is i am an old woman named after my mother so he's writing a song as a young man doing something that most guys his age were not doing he was writing in characters and in this case he was writing and he sang the song and he's writing it as a woman um in a loveless marriage um, who feels like she's just gone 
um, very old and, um, and her husband's gotten old and they're just a very burned out marriage. And I think the, um, the line here that people, it's strange, people hear this line and Jason Wilbur, his guitarist said this, I believe in an essay that he wrote, he had been playing guitar with John Prime for 25 years. And he, he said, the one line to believe in this living is just a hard way to go. Yeah. People were, were, would light up with that. And again, um, you just give me one thing that I can hold on to, to believe in this living is a hard way to go. And the other line of that is, um, um, how the hell can a person go to work in the morning and come home in the evening and have nothing to say? Yeah. Think about all the people coming home, you know, in a winter's night after the factory, having nothing to say, probably a lot, you know? And I think we all know that feeling and we all have families We're there are probably people in that too. And, and so I think it's that sort of like, um, yeah, people saw themselves and saw people they knew in those songs. And, and that's what made that song really, um, it's, it's going to, it's traveling through generations and it's going to keep traveling to generations ahead. And um, like any great songs from Lennon McCarthy and, um, you know, Rachel, anybody, I mean, those, that song, you know, really resonates with people. Yeah. That, um, that, that line yeah. that you cited, uh, how about coming home from work, have nothing to say. Roger Ebert quoted it in that essay from, 1971 i want to say that, that first article Amazing. yeah and he quoted that uh that that struck him uh as well mark i know i gotta let you go okay. go ahead what were you gonna say well, i was gonna ask you really well i was gonna ask you if you wanted to just talk about lake marie really quick oh all right i'm you're the one with the phone call i could talk about lake marie for <laughs> a half an hour um lake, yeah yeah i'm gonna lake, yeah i was gonna ask you about that because i um i think i can i think the thing might get pushed back but i want to ask you about see if you wanted to talk about Lake Marie. Oh, I yeah. found the article. So I interviewed him in 1999. Mm -hmm. And he, um, uh, and so we were talking and I did the interview and it was all finished. And then I said, Hey, you know, do you mind if you break down this one song of yours? And that song probably had only been out for less than 10 years, you know, Lake Marie. Mm -hmm. And so, um, he went on and on. And he talked about how, um, how he, how that song came together. So for people who don't know that, that that song has three different parts. One part is him, you know, the protagonist and the girlfriend cooking sausages alongside one of the lakes up near the Wisconsin Illinois border. And then the second part is about, um, well, the first part is about the history of the lake and about how it was named after two white babies who the Native Americans found and they named the lakes after these, these two girls. And the last one is about um, seeing uh, a murder on uh, television and how it was really haunting. So these three very separate things he's bringing together in one song. So he said that he actually was playing, which is amazing, he was sound checking for a song. He was playing the Woodstock Opera House. So if you're, I don't know if you've ever been there, but that is a tiny, tiny venue in the, the town square of Woodstock, Illinois. And he said... He had overheard um, some of the guys who worked there just talking about Lake Marie, and he had never heard about it. And he said, is that nearby? And he said, they said, yeah, it's about 20 minutes down the road. And so he's like, um, wow, I haven't been there. So he got directions, and he and his brother, in the middle of February, drove over to um, see Lake Marie. And, um, and the entire town shut down because it's a vacation town. 
And uh, so they just saw this little library. He walked in the library and he asked the librarian, has anyone ever written about the history of that lake? And she said, no, um, but there's a local historian who's been working on it. So she got his business card and gave it to him and he called the guy up and, and, uh, and he says, um, I'm interested in just learning more about this lake. And so he and this historian start this correspondence where he's sending John Pine articles about, you know, Lake Marie and the, in the Twin Lakes area. And he learns, um, this little snippet about these two sisters, the lakes were named after. Mm-hmm. And so he learns the story about the Indians that were around the area and they found these girls. And so he told me, he said at the time, I said, when I heard that, I said, well, that's the song right there. So he starts writing Lake Marie and that's the first part of the song. And so the second verse is about meeting a girl and cooking Italian sausages, which is, you know, is there anything more Chicago than cooking Italian sausages? Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, that was me and my girlfriend from high school. We used to go up to the Twin Lakes the chain of lakes and uh and hang out there on the weekends and have picnics so that's um that's that's, that's the second verse and the third verse was um in the late 50s and early 60s he said there were a lot of unsolved murders that were going around in the suburbs and very strange murders that were just unsolved and um he, he grew up thinking that um being downtown was a bad area but he said wow around us in the suburbs that's where all the, you know, really kind of heinous, crazy crimes are happening, like blue velvet. Yeah. And so that's where the third verse came from. And so, it, you know, so he put it all together and it worked. And then he just went and recorded it. And if he, at the end of Lake Marie, he's talking about um, um, our love was slammed, but the, you know, the love was between me and this girl, um, the violence that um, happened in, you know, this, the verse of the last verse of the song. It was all slammed up against Lake Marie. And I think that, um, you know, you have a really beautiful place that starts out, you know, very innocent. And um, and over time, it's not, the picture you see is not really what it is. Um, and I think that's kind of how all those kind of disparate things are connected. So it's interesting, he kind of started out with the history of this lake and it kind of went another place. And it's, in a way, a lot of him that's inside that song. Yeah, no, I uh as well as a lot of Chicago. Yeah. I, I this this particular song is one of the, one of these where I'm always worried about putting too much of my own thought into the song. We had to talk about this. We had uh, Mick Dumkey was on the show a couple of weeks ago. We were breaking down Dylan's latest uh murder most foul, which has to do with the Kennedy assassination. And it's really easy to do this with Bob Dylan since nobody, there's many lines, nobody knows what the heck he's talking about. So you just put your own thoughts <laughs> into it. John Lennon, I do that a lot with too. And uh, John Prine, not so much because there's, you know, he doesn't mess around usually. You know, he, he's delivering something like Sam Stone that you can really, really understand. But in Lake Marie, when I, was, when I heard it, I was like, oh, what he's doing is talking about the whole history of what we've done to Native Americans and what we've done and how we've destroyed um, land over time or destroyed this state uh, over time. And, And so you have this history where these nice little memories of the lake uh, that he has with his girlfriend are preceded by, you know, the white man taking away the Indians, the Native Americans' land, and then culminating with screwing up the civilization 
with their violence. Uh, I don't know. I, again, I probably put too yeah, much no, into I think, it. But... I think no. No, I think, but I think that's kind of like right. I mean, like the lyrics are, or the, you know, the chorus is, you know, we are standing by peaceful waters. And, um, and then, you know, the last verse is, do you know what um, blood looks like in a black and white video? And um, all the love we share between her and me was slammed against the banks of Lake Marie. I think, you know, and it says, oh, the answer to this question is shadows. Shadows, you know, is what blood looks like in a black and white video, which is true. And so I always thought it's sort of like um, behind every beautiful thing, there's some kind of pain. You know, yeah. that's a Bob Dylan lyric, you know. And so I, I see it as that, you know, sort of like there's there's shadows lurking behind every beautiful thing. And, and corruption always comes in. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's this really beautiful song. But I think ultimately it's that... Um, yeah, it's that kind of dark. It's kind of like, you know, when, you, when I was a kid and you'd go home and you watch the five o'clock news or something, and, you know, it might be WGN, and it might be a black and white TV, and you hear about some like crazy murder. You know, it is true, exactly what you're saying. You know, so there's all the craziest murders you're always out in the suburbs. And you think, wow, how can anyone do that thing? And then you kind of move on to a commercial or something, and it goes, and you forget about it. And I think that's kind of what this song is getting, you know, getting at. It's like, you can't, it's still there. Those murders are still there, you know, so you can have this beautiful area, but you also have this, you know, you also have this, you know, you have the left hand, you also have the right hand, you know, so you have this, this other part of life that's still there as well. You know, I don't think he's overtly, you know, running out and saying that, but I think there is kind of a truth there, the sort of inarticulate truth that connects these things. Yeah, and uh, I would urge everybody, uh, well, I, I guess I'm, I want to be backtrack. I'm not urging everybody to do this, but if you really want to take like a deep dive into the depravity of uh, of, of the Midwest and how, like we have this veneer, like we're this placid, hardworking civilization, you know, where everybody's law-abiding, <laughs> and but really the reality behind, like you could watch uh, Psycho, uh, the, which... Um, uh, the, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, which is based on a murder uh, in Wisconsin, but there's a book called Wisconsin Death Trip. I don't know if you ever saw it, man. Oh yeah, I have. A, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I have the book. Yeah, yeah. All uh, those photos. Yeah, all the photos of the depravity that exists just under the surface, <laughs> and I think that's what Prine was getting at. Uh, he saw things. He put it all together. It's a great song, folks. It's not one that you probably will. It's you know, it wouldn't be on a greatest hit album. Uh, but I urge everybody to check out all of these songs. Lake Marie is the name of the song. All right, Mark, I'm going to let you go. John Prine, he was born October 10th, 1946. He just died April 7th, 2020, uh, coronavirus-related, correct? Yep, he died from, uh, you know, complication of coronavirus. Sadly, he's, he's on that list of other people, famous or not famous, who, who died from that virus. Yeah, he's uh, particularly susceptible uh, to the disease. And for I remember when he got it and the word broke that he was sick uh, and friends were sending me texts like, Ben, did you hear about John Prine? Yeah. And then it seemed like he was doing better. I don't know if you remember this part, like the word. Yeah, that- yeah, exactly. Like, and also because they said like, you know, it's a 14 day period. And, uh, okay, there's no news. Okay. And then out of blue, the blue, Tuesday night, his, uh, his wife put, out a message on on Twitter, and um, you know, it's just it's you know, I don't really, I don't know about you, but when I hear about someone famous dying or 
you know, it doesn't really, if I didn't know them, it didn't, doesn't really affect me, you know, and so I don't really get sad like it would be if it's somebody who I knew. You know, I have their movies and I have their music. But that John, John Pine dying from coronavirus just seemed really, really cruel um, of what's just been going on the last couple of weeks. That just seemed like that, that I was pretty affected by that one. And probably the first person um, like that who's died that I really kind of felt that um, deeply about it. It, it just it just seemed very cruel at the same time of all the malfeasance going on with this virus, and it was just very 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 sad. It just seemed like an unjust way to go. Certainly did. All right, Mark. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, and appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me. All right, it's Mark Reno. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.